Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are Darren Rosenblum, professor of law at McGill University, and Anat Alone Beck, assistant professor of law at Case Western Reserve University. We'll be discussing their articles, No More Old Boys Club, Institutional Investors' Fiduciary Duty to Advance Board Gender Diversity, which is forthcoming in the UC Davis Law Review, and A Duty to Diversify, which is forthcoming in the Vanderbilt Law Review. Both articles were co-authored with Mihail Egmond Gunnan of Tel Aviv University, and I'll add links to the papers in the show notes for the episode. Darren, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Nanat, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. I wonder if we could start this conversation about gender diversity at the board level in corporate America with maybe a level set on where we are. Where are we today on gender parity of boardrooms in the C-suites, in the senior corporate ranks? And has there been any progress in recent years? How big an issue is this? I'll start with the last question, which is how big an issue it is. We both think it's a central issue in corporate governance because of the high level of exclusion of women from corporate leadership, both in the C-suite and in the boardroom. There has been progress. There's no doubt about that. In particular, over the past few years, there's been a slow increase in inclusion of women in boardrooms. But I think in the past year and a half or so, there's been an increased urgency on the broader question of diversification, largely in the wake of the BLM movement, but that this change has really, I think, impacted inclusion efforts more broadly so that corporations are really starting to think, I think, in a more holistic fashion about how and when they can be inclusive. We've also seen an increase, notably after California passed its mandate 826, which was passed in 2018, which, while it elicited a lot of objections by many different actors within the corporate community, ultimately the statute proved very successful because firms really stepped up and complied with the statute. And then more recently, NASDAQ passed its own diversity rule, which I think should have an impact. So even for firms that aren't directly affected by these measures, I think it's clear that this is an agenda item that's front and center for the corporate nominations committee as they figure out what to do moving forward, who to include and how to include them. One last thing that I think is relevant is to note is that the U.S. is behind a little bit compared to other countries. About 30 countries have have mandates for inclusion of women on corporate boards, and the U.S. doesn't. California does, of course. But I think that creates a broader global corporate environment in which inclusion has become a central priority. So it's into that context that we started thinking about the fiduciary duty issue and whether it should be part of corporate governance. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about that comparative aspect. You mentioned a California statute. You mentioned about 30 other countries have board mandates. What has been the impact on the ground of these policies as compared to maybe a free market approach that existed before? Have we seen an immediate pendulum swing? Has this been part and parcel of other market forces or has public policy really been playing a driving role on the issue of board diversity? I think it has. Norway is the the country that passed the first mandate. Their quota came into force in 2003, and the mandate's full impact was felt in 2008. And it was a pretty rigid requirement with a 40% floor for either sex, men or women. And that was copied by France a few years later. And then a lot of other European countries followed suit. And as I mentioned a minute ago, it's now almost 30 countries that have mandates. And I forget whether it's seven or eight of the top 10 economies have mandates for inclusion of women on corporate boards. The fact is that firms typically do comply with these laws, particularly when they're hard mandates, such as the one that Norway or France have. Countries like Canada or the UK have more comply or explain norms, and they have much lower rates of compliance. But regardless, we've seen certainly an uptick overall in inclusion on corporate boards as a result of these laws. So I do think they have a positive impact. Comparing that impact to just the general improvement over time in the U.S., It is a market difference in that in, for example, Norway or France, the levels of women on corporate boards are north of 40%. And in the U.S., it's crept up by half a percentage point or a percentage point every few years. So we're far behind countries with harder mandates. So it sounds like there's definitely potential for public policy interventions to make a difference on the issue of board diversity, board gender diversity, and maybe the exact structure of that policy will affect just how big an uptake it is. I'd like to talk about some other players, though, that might be contributing to an uptick in board diversity and a potential future expansion of board diversity. And that's the role of institutional investors. The U.S. equities markets are, of course, increasingly institutionalized, held by the Black Rocks and the vanguards and the State Streets world. In New York City, there is a new landmark statue of sorts in the financial district, the Fearless Girl statue, which commissioned by State Street, I understand, as part of its initiative on board gender diversity. So there's a lot of interest from institutional investors on this issue right now. Could you talk a little bit about the role that they've been playing Have they been actively advocating for board gender diversity or are they taking a more neutral or passive stance? And have they had any impact that you've seen on corporate diversity, on gender diversity on boards? Thank you so much, Andrew. This is a great question. And I think I'll start with a few things. I'll lay out the the picture of what we're seeing and then talk about some of the initiatives. So exactly like you stated, we've seen the big three making statements on diversity and their commitments to diversity. And I think if we're looking at the bigger picture, let's look at some of the factors that are influencing this. So there are global structural changes in capital management, in our financial markets, in economic theory, and, and a theory on uh, risk management. 
And so what all these forces are doing, they're also changing our understanding of fiduciary principle. And there's a lot of criticism from economics, behavioral finance scholars on current investments, okay, and risk management practices. And so what we're doing in this piece is we're really showing these recent changes and we're examining a new way with regards to taking fiduciary practices and principles into account. Are they evolving? How can these Large players align their goals with this general goal that they're saying that they have, which is sustainable long-term investment goal. And what we've definitely seen, we've seen many of these players in the past few years, because of all these pressures, making public statements. And what I think they are fiduciaries, what their beneficiaries are going to take into account, they're going to start judging them based on these statements, Okay. What are they doing? What are their actions? It's not enough just to make statements, but what are their actions? And as fiduciaries, what they're supposed to protect their beneficiaries from uh, abuse by other fiduciary agents, from generally from abuse. And so we've been looking at over the past few years, how these fiduciary principles, how did they evolve? What do we want these types of institutional investors fund managers, what do we want them to do? And today, just like Darren stated, there's still a lack of representation of female directors in the boardrooms and in C-suite. And so what's happening is it's, it's also internationally and in the United States, the diversity in the boardroom has become a major issue for both public and private corporations. Now, I have to say, that outside the United States, we're actually seeing more movement with regards to advocating for the fact that there already is a recognition, that there already is a fiduciary duty to diversify. Now, in the United States, we think that through their statements, perhaps institutional investors are already recognizing this duty as well through their actions, through their statements. Things are changing because in the past two decades, institutional investors' fiduciary duties have been understood in the past to forbid any investment decision that's going to sacrifice returns, for example, for other social imperatives, right? Like equality. What we also did in this piece was we conducted empirical analysis on the principles of common law, different jurisdictions, fiduciary duty. And what does that fiduciary duty teach us about investment and how does that change? And I think that here in the U.S., we still need to see more legal reform to encourage investors to consider the consequences of their decisions on a different stakeholders, including women's equality. But like I said, through their statements, they're already acting as if they have this fiduciary duty. And what social science is teaching us now, it demonstrates to us, is how diverse groups make better decisions than homogeneous ones. And so we think that with regards to corporate governance and fiduciary duties, there's a lot of value for diversity, and it's a central core of good governance. And there's a lot of studies that are showing that there are many shortcomings with groupthink, for example. The Black Rocks of the world, the Black Rocks, the vanguards, the state streets of the world hold four, five, six, seven percent of the shares of a typical public company each. That money, those shares, of course, don't belong to BlackRock, Vanguard, or State Street. It's not Larry Fink's money. Those shares ultimately are for the benefit of investors like you and me. 
So ultimately, when BlackRock is acting, when State Street is acting, it's acting on behalf of its own investors, its own customers. In your article, No More Old Boys Club, you offer, I think, a, a novel pitch that institutional shareholders own fiduciary duties to their customers, folks like you and me, might include a fiduciary duty to ensure that their portfolio companies diversify their boards. Could you sketch out that theory, that pitch for us? Sure. The way we take a look at it in this piece, and like I said, we're building on this notion that's already happening around the world, is that equality is a fundamental principle, okay? And it's the base of any democratic society. And it's protected in many international conventions. And it requires that we treat all human beings equally. We believe that promoting equality for women on boards of directors really requires gender-based considerations. Like we said, there's different ways of taking that into account. With regards to institutional investors, we believe that it's part of their really good governance, right? They are universal owners, just as you stated, Andrew. Think about their power. With their power comes great responsibility. They have this power to change how things are done because they vote through proxy votes. And so... Now they have all these offices, like engagement offices. There's still controversy about that because, you know, they have a very you know, small number of people in those offices. But we think it's a great development, right? The fact that they're even having it. What I think is we're recognizing this change, right? And the fact that they are really influential in our markets and the power that they have. And so we believe that they should use that power. And they should do that because they are beneficiaries, because we believe that's going to benefit their investors, their beneficiaries. They can make a huge change in the companies that they invest in because they have such influence on their board of directors. And let's just think about that for a second. And we have shareholders are the ones that are supposed to elect the board, right? And we have institutional investors. And What they do is they really, they influence, they pressure firms, and they can do that through what we call private ordering to improve gender equality at the burn level. And think about it, that's like a perfect market solution, and they're already acting that way, okay? They're already doing that. We believe that this is perfect because they they can do that. They have a responsibility to change the old boys club culture, and they have a responsibility to support diversity, and they have a responsibility to support organizational inclusion. And I think that fiduciary relationships are important because what they're doing is they're setting the norms. And this fiduciary duty is imposed on the people or the organizations that are in a position of trust, and they're in a position of confidence. We want them to deal with the different agency cause, a semester information, conflict of interest. When they, what they do is they exercise their powers and they're going to vote and they are going to exercise their powers in the interest of another person. That's what they do as fiduciaries. And so this is where we think, and like you said, they're already signaling that that's what they're doing through their public statements, through putting that statute, through asking, and which is very important. One of the things that we're recommending is more disclosure. We're asking companies to disclose on their candidates, on, on their pool. How do they pick candidates? And so that's going to encourage them to take these factors into account. And the processes are very important. 
so they can, and there's a lot of literature on that. Why is it not efficient, what we're currently seeing, so they can influence that? So I think, again, they are very powerful market actors. And what they need to do is they need to take, and they are saying they are taking it, stakeholder interests into account. And that was, right, Larry Fink's latest paper, the stakeholder, the fact that they're taking stakeholders into account. That was revolutionary a few years ago. You know, Lynn Stout was one of my mentors. I wish she was here with us today. You know, to see that, this is part of taking stakeholder interests into account. Thank you, Anad, for articulating that. I would just add that part of the responsibility of these institutional investors also comes from something that Fink articulated so clearly in the recent letter, which is the business case for inclusion. That is to say that including diverse groups of people in governance improves that governance. And there's a lot of social science data out there about the increased efficacy of decision-making when made by diverse teams. And there's also a lot of data about the ways in which groupthink can harm governance decisions so that when there's a group of insiders like the Old Boys Network who make decisions in a fashion that really uses a logical shorthand instead of exploring a deep examination of a particular issue, it can really harm their decision-making processes and lead to unnecessary risk and ineffective decision-making. I think the business case is a valid piece of why this is important and also a responsibility for uh, institutional investors to take on. You articulate a fiduciary duty on the part of institutional investors to push for increased gender diversity on the boards of their portfolio companies. And one enforcement mechanism for that duty that you discuss is perhaps the need for further disclosure by institutional investors. But of course, wherever there's fiduciary duty, there's fiduciary duty litigation. Do you see that as a prospect under this idea of an institutional investor's fiduciary duty to diversify? And if so, what might that litigation look like? That's another great question, because I'm sure you've noticed there's been a lot of litigation recently against corporate boards, against companies where they made statements on diversity, and then you take a look at their boards and they're not diversified. So there's a few law firms in California that started taking action with regards to public companies that made these statements and did nothing about it. And with regards to institutional investors, I think that they need to navigate the institutional investors, their trustees, what they need to start navigating is, again, a very significant risk that they're also facing. And I think any fiduciary is facing, and that is the risk of litigation. And what uh, we've witnessed is there's a sizable increase overall in the quantity and also in the scope of fiduciary litigation. And fiduciaries are routinely threatened and often they're prosecuted against, including institutional trustees, okay? They're, they're in the same position. And so if you take a look at recent fiduciary litigation cases in the United States, there's a few areas, right? There's a number of areas where dispute repeatedly arise. And, and I'll just tell you some of these categories, and I think that they are definitely relevant to this as well, with regards to diversity as well. So there's several categories of dispute. And one is with regards to the creation of the trust. 
The second is with regards to the construction of the trust terms. The third is with regards to a breach of uh, fiduciary duty claims. And this is where what we're seeing now. And that is that they can, the same way that lawyers and certain law firms go after large public companies, they can go after institutional investors. If they're not doing it by looking at their actions, if they don't see that they're taking any action, they can say that they're breaching their fiduciary duty. There's also a fourth category of liability for investment decisions overall. And the fifth is, of course, this issue of compensation of trustees and their lawyers. What's happening is that they can use our federal securities laws and this idea of breaching fiduciary duty. And that is if they made certain misrepresentations about their commitments to diversity and inclusion on boards or with regards to senior ranks. And I don't think that institutional investors are immune from this. And so I think they take that very seriously. It's something that they are exposed to as well. That actually, if it's okay, takes me to another piece that we were talking about. We just wrote as a response to a new paper that's coming out, which I think is a great paper, Duty and Diversity, by Professor Chris Brummer and Leo Strine, the former Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court. And what they're doing at their piece is that they maintain that corporate fiduciary duties basically go along with efforts that are aimed at a diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that means that companies need to comply with civil rights, with anti-discrimination laws and norms. And we completely agree with them. I think it's amazing. And just look at that change. All of us who teach corporate law, we know what happened, for example, with Kermar and Bill Allen and the way he developed that. He saw the trend and the fact that there was a need to develop this duty of oversight. And I think here, now we're discussing diversity. And I think it's important to develop that theory. Now, Corporate law does have a huge role. It has a positive role to play in supporting corporations in taking actions to promote diversity. But the way we diverge a little bit, first of all, we applaud them. We think it's great. But what they're doing, the moves that they're doing in their paper, and I completely understand, it's more of a, of a let's say, the uh, middle way. And that is they recognize that there is some fiduciary duty requirement for diversity and equality. And the minimum is found within pre-existing civil rights, like I said, anti-discrimination and other laws that are designed to ensure fair access. And that companies can take these principles and interests into account. What we believe is that there should be more than this minimum. There should be a duty. We should start talking about a duty just the same way that, like I said, that Bill Allen developed this duty of oversight. We think that companies have to today start taking diversity into account. And we think that today corporate law not just allows, maybe it encourages and even mandates that corporate leaders start doing the right thing. What does it mean to do the right thing? And we're going to ask corporate leaders. We're also going to ask institutional investors to carry their fiduciary duties and to make sure that there's going to be a new leadership and that's going to benefit the firms that they're investing in, their investors. And that is because of all the reasons that Darren just outlined, which is the benefits of equality and diversity within this corporate leadership is becoming increasingly apparent. And it also uh, resulted in significant gains for companies who actively seek these initiatives. And and we think that 
under current fiduciary duties to govern on behalf of shareholders, on behalf of management, on behalf of the board itself, they have an obligation perhaps under their duty of loyalty to go beyond minimal legal requirements. They need to do more for equality and diversity. I would just add, and I guess my comment links back to your question a moment ago, Andrew, about litigation, that part of what we're urging is this fiduciary duty. And while there could be perhaps litigation that would ensue, to my mind, that litigation would really target not hard specific numbers of inclusion, but rather to ensure that firms have processes of hiring executives and board members that are inclusive processes. One thing I'll mention related to a prior study I did on France's corporate board quota, one of the things I found out in interviewing board members is that one of the effects of the quota was that firms all of a sudden started hiring talent search agencies, headhunters, to find corporate executives to serve on the board, whereas previously they would just call up people they knew. And so part of what I think we're really interested in is disrupting this old boys network by making it clear that firms need to have processes in place to ensure that they are being inclusive in an appropriate fashion. That doesn't mean that there needs to be a specific outcome. I don't think, at least for me, and we haven't, Michal and Anat and I haven't discussed this, and perhaps it would be an interest topic for further research, whether a specific outcome would be required. To my mind, this fiduciary duty is really principally about making sure that the governance processes are being met appropriately. Because the default, the system we currently have, is one that is very exclusionary, and that needs to be disrupted. This is great. Thank you so much, Sharon, because I absolutely agree. And this is really part of a larger paradigm shift that we're seeing with thinking about corporate governance and recognizing the benefits of gender diversity and management overall. And what we're doing, which is really unique here, and I want to build on what Darren said because it's very important, is also to help institutional investors push for more gender equality. We also propose some solutions to these problems. First, to address the lack of accessible information on diversity. So we suggested that public companies could have an obligation to disclose in proxy statements data that relates to diversity within their ranks, especially the number of women, for example. We can think about other groups as well. And we also called on companies to adopt new policies. And these new policies really need to be compatible with this imperative regarding search committees, selection processes. This is where it really matters. And we're building a lot of research on this. This is where it really matters and it can make a huge difference. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from these papers and this interview? And are there future or open research questions you hope to tackle? I think the key takeaway is that the purpose of the firm, which is really guaranteed by a rigorous enforcement of fiduciary duties, connects to the questions of diversity. So what we want to make clear to people 
is that the effective exercise of corporate governance involves processes of hiring elites that reflect diversity and that lead to the inclusion of diverse groups of people in leadership. This is essential for good corporate governance. And I think it really is a paradigm shift. Part of what's going on, I think, is, and I'm going to take this back to a question you posed earlier, Andrew, about the distinction between private ordering solutions and public solutions like state mandates for inclusion. The fiduciary duty is really somewhere in the middle in that it sets a norm of inclusion, but it really puts the burden on the firms themselves as to how to implement that. And so it creates a governance process within the firm for inclusion that I think ultimately might generate greater inclusion without the same issues that surface with hard quotas as we've seen in other jurisdictions. Yes, thank you. And and to me, honestly, it's, it's a very important topic, which is evolving. And there's a lot of already discussion and acceptance of these norms outside the United States. It would be great if this could stimulate, you know, some further research here in the U.S. like it already is doing, like I said, with the Brummer and Strine piece. And hopefully we'll see more pieces on this. And I think overall, what would be nice is I think it can, this piece can also open up more discussion with regards to the fiduciary duty of diversification, about the benefits of using this type of private ordering to advance inclusion generally, and how do we want to do that with other groups as well. And it would be amazing to also see maybe Delaware take this into account. And I think they already have this pressure, right? Think about that. So many stakeholders are doing things with regards to that, whether it's other states or stock exchanges and, and companies and large players like institutional investors. So I think people want to see some discussion from the court itself on this normative framework. And it would be great to see more discussion on fiduciary duties in governance. And, and let's see what happens here in the U.S. I also just want to add with regard to your question about further work in this area, what we've really tried to achieve is shifting the focus to within the firm's governance structure to ensure that diversity actually happens. We've seen a lot of efforts on diversity within the firm as a matter of public image, and we're really trying to engineer a conversation about shifting that to the substantive place in which governance occurs within the firm. And it really does open up a lot of questions. It's why we frame the piece really not as an argument for the fiduciary duty, but posing the question of whether this would be a good place for things to move forward. And so it would be very interesting to see how this might play out in terms of different firms adopting fiduciary duties, different jurisdictions implementing the duty in different fashions. I think there's a lot of areas for research here. Our guests today have been Darren Rosenblum, professor of law at McGill University, and Anat Alone Beck, assistant professor of law at Case Western Reserve University. 
We've discussed their articles, No More Old Boys Club, Institutional Investors' Fiduciary Duty to Advance Board Gender Diversity, which is forthcoming in the UC Davis Law Review, and A Duty to Diversify, which is forthcoming in the Vanderbilt Law Review. Both articles were co-authored with Michal Egmon Gunnan of Tel Aviv University. I'll link the papers in the show notes for the episode. Darren, Anat, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.